Jingi walla blagami arako dukum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bugube blagami. Thank you, Delta K, Araku Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. I'm Edwina Johnson, director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast series featuring writers from the 2021 festival lineup. These conversations were due to take place live in Byron Bay in August, but have been recorded digitally instead. In this session, Meg Mason talks with ABC Radio National Sarah Konoski about her novel Sorrow and Bliss, which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Hello, Sarah Konoski here from Conversations on ABC Radio and Podcast. Now, the first plan for this conversation was for me to speak with author Meg Mason in front of a live audience at the Byron Writers Festival. But like so many cultural events over the last 18 months, that festival was cancelled and Meg is in lockdown in Sydney. The next plan was that I would speak to Meg from the ABC studios in Brisbane, but now I'm at home too in quarantine. So we're speaking via Zoom. Thank goodness for good books to get us through these times. And Meg has written a really good book, a fantastic book, Sorrow and Bliss. And the content lives up to the title. It's caustically funny and heart-wrenching about the dynamics that can happen in our relationships with our partners and siblings and parents and with ourselves. And it's also an achingly sweet love story. Hi, Meg. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. I'm sorry not to be meeting you in person. How, how have the last few weeks of this very strange year been for you? Do you know, I learned from last time that the only way to get through this is to be uncharacteristically cheerful and stoic to the point of slight lunacy. So I, <laughs> I sort of swing out the other way and I never... Well, I try never to let myself complain, um, which is definitely against nature, but it seems to be working. I think I sort of trick myself into thinking that it's all completely fine, spirit of the blitz, and, you know, on we go. But actually, secretly, morale is, you know, it's low. It's it low. ebbs, it ebbs. Well, I was it does. thinking, because, you know, writers by, by definition usually spend a lot of time alone, I guess often at home. What's been the biggest difference in your life during months of lockdown? Well, I think it's the reverse, isn't it? That what everybody else has dealt with is having to learn how to work from home and all the tricks of sort of keeping your spirits up and managing your emotions through that process. But obviously for those of us who already worked at home, it's learning how to do anything with other people around, um, which is which is genuinely really new. And, you know, I've got my two children at home and they're doing really well considering everything and you know with high schoolers and all of that sort of thing but it is different for me just to have that sense of other people you know here between nine and three and and that it it can sort of be a struggle to get slightly to that lower or, or deeper level of thought when you think you might suddenly need to make lunch for someone else so I think it's a tiny problem but it's you know it's ever present for me at the moment. I've just had the pleasure of rereading your novel Sorrow and Bliss and there's so much going on emotionally in this book you know I laughed I cried but I thought <laughs> let's start with the funny bits how do you go about writing humour I mean is it something that you try out on on friends is it if you can make yourself laugh how how do you come at writing humour? Because you do it so well. Oh, thank you. It's it's really funny. I always I always feel slightly um, you know, hot in the face when someone asks me a question like that because to answer it is to sort of agree that I'm hilarious. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And it's a bit like that moment in Mean Girls. How are you like, so do you think you're pretty then? <laughs> exactly. Um, so do you agree? You're really funny. No, um, I, I think that it's just it's more that it's well, I mean, I've always written humor as a journalist and a columnist. But I think it's more just in this case, it was the fact that I didn't try and stop myself because as my publishers explained to me on numerous occasions in the past where I've struggled and I've erred towards, you know, things that are too bleak and too dark because it seems more intellectual to me if it's really sad and I'm, you know, I'm quite pretentious. So I think 
you know, that sort of thing is more literary. She sort of always tried to make me understand, and I think I finally got there with her on Bliss, that just because something comes more easily to you doesn't mean it's, mean it's of less value. And so I think I'd sort of always, just in fiction, pushed against it and tried to make it serious. But actually this time, um, because of all the circumstances as well that led to the novel, I just let it be whatever I wanted and if I thought it was funny then in it went and I think the only thing was that I was sort of really surprised when it came out that other people found it funny too because it's some of the things are quite specific and they're not really jokes you know they're sort of just more absurd little observations and things that are um yeah that I would have thought maybe it's just me but I'm, I'm really glad if it's it's at least you and well, one or two other <laughs> At least me. When I was just leafing through the book just before I got on the call, there was a, just one moment that stood out was where uh, one of the characters who's just had a baby, Ingrid, is going to get a um, get a takeaway coffee and like her whole life has been transformed into being seen just as a mother and she takes a picture to her sister of what's been written on the coffee cup and instead of her name <laughs> it is Lady with a Pram. <laughs> That's exactly, exactly. Erasure, complete erasure by a barista. What what makes you laugh or whose writing makes you laugh? Oh, well, do you know, because I never read as a, as a child or as a teenager voluntarily. I was read too um, as a child, of course, by my mother, who's extremely, you know, um, really hungry reader, voracious reader. And, um, but I never, I never came to it myself as a teenager, but what I was doing instead of reading was watching endless Victoria Wood and French and Saunders and absolutely fabulous and Monty Python and all sorts of things. I used to bike to the video store alone on weekends and rent videos that the person on the desk would always say, oh, the system shows you've had this one before. And I'd be like, well, no, uh, okay, fine. And I'd get it again until I sort of stretched the tape. But I think all of that sort of soaked in um, but I mean, in terms of fiction, I, I find the funniest writers are sort of also the saddest ones. You know, if you think of something like grief as a thing with feathers or any Nancy Mitford, I mean, it's funny, but then it's absolutely not funny at the same time. And, you know, those are the books to me that I adore. Those, those ones that are absolutely half, half humor and pathos. I think that's the skill that I, I most want to develop. Well, in, in, as a writer. in terms of how those those two sides work together, how do you think of that in, in terms of sorrow and bliss, the, the humour and the pain? Is is one, uh, I don't know, the, the flip side or the other? Is one a reward to the reader for the other? Does one work against the other? How, how do you see the balance in this book for a reader, do you think? Yeah, I think um, the way that I think it, the way I understand it is that it's told by Martha, the protagonist who has this undiagnosed mental illness and as a consequence of it, a failing marriage and a difficult relationship with her parents and all sorts of other things after 20 years of that struggle. And she's telling the story. And I think the way humour works is that it's a really sad story. And when we tell the saddest stories about ourselves to make it bearable to ourselves and to other people, we have to make it funny. And that's sort of what she does. And so both in the way that she explains it, you know, in the in the narrative, but also in scenes that she describes, often in the, in the worst moments, in the darkest moments, she or somebody else, particularly her sister Ingrid, will make a joke. And I think that's sort of how I see humour working in the real world is that the things we're most terrified of, you know, death or whatever it is, we try and control with gallows humour because it makes you think it's bearable and you can face it. And, you know, that's what we do to feel safe. So I think that's how it works um, in the text. But it's, you know, it's, it's hard to have a sort of, mm. I guess, um, step of remove from it because it was just, I just told it, do you know what I mean? And it just came out the way it came out. So it was definitely, most of it wasn't really conscious. Tell me more about what's happening with the narrator, Martha, at the beginning of the novel. Where's she at in her life? So we meet her when she's 40. It's sort of the day or so before her 40th birthday party. Or is it the day of starting to be quite a few I months? I think it's and a few I've days after. <laughs> <laughs> a few days after. There you go. You see, I haven't actually got, I haven't read it, to be honest with you. I just couldn't get into it. Um, no, it, yes. And so her marriage is a, is a couple of days away from ending, um, her marriage to Patrick. And so when, as soon as that sort of scene is done, we switch straight back to her childhood, which is when she first met Patrick. And then the, the rest of that is the telling of these 20 years. And the big sort of, I suppose, hinge is that when she was 17, 
she describes it as a little bomb going off in her head, which has left her with this mental illness, which for all her struggle and striving, she was never able to find a diagnosis for. Um, you know, therapists, doctors, medication, none of it worked. And so by the time sort of 20 years of um, life has passed by, she, you know, you would come to the point of sort of thinking, well, it must just be me, even though I think still deep down she knows it isn't. And then, of course, she does get a diagnosis, and the question arises at that point of, but is it too late? You know, with her marriage nearly over and her relationships and her career such as they are, um, I suppose the the real question that runs through it is is her trying to decide whether it's too late and what can be done about it now. What does she do for work at at almost 40 or just turned 40? Well, she begins, her career begins so promisingly after sort of a philosophy degree, you know, she gets this job at Vogue and then the way her sister Ingrid describes it is that, you know, thanks to all her fortitude and hard work, she's been steadily descending the career ladder ever since. So sort of jobs become a bit thinner on the ground. And by the time she's 40, she's, you know, sort of worked in various shops and now she's writing a funny food column for a supermarket magazine, which she says that, you know, the editor takes all the jokes out of and then it's just a food column. <laughs> and and at the start of the novel, she's actually moved back home to live with her, her mum and dad. What kind of home was it for her growing up? What was her family life as a child? I think you could describe it as bohemian if you wanted to put a really lovely spin, generous spin on absolutely chaotic. So her father, who I I think he's quite sweet, his name's Fergus and he's a poet, but he's had sort of writer's block for the entire course of his career. So he's sort of yet to publish something. And then um, her mother, Celia, is um, described as a minorly important sculptor. Um, and so she sort of um, fairly weaponous, you know, narcissistic, um, functioning alcoholic, I would say. And she and Martha, you know, don't have a lot of sympathy for each other in the first, you know, in the first few sections of the book, at least. So I suppose I think the thing is that that's why she ends up having this, you know, really wonderfully close relationship with Ingrid because they're sort of co-survivors of that childhood. And and it's in London and, and there's a lot of really kind of wonderful descriptions of this household and, and this part of London and what the house itself looks like. What what colour was was the house that Martha grew up in painted? <laughs> it was Umbrian sunrise, Sarah. <laughs> um, but it sort of was a, it's painted, well, it's half Umbrian sunrise because her mother at some point described, you know, began to describe herself as a conscientious objector to domestic duties. And so Fergus sort of had to take over and he, he, painted it he started painting it you know when they purchased this house for its good bones but never finished so it's sort of Umbrian sunrise to about waist height through most of it which sort of you know I suppose goes with the idea that Martha describes of the house you know the towels are always wet and the you know blinds are hanging off the the rail and that sort of thing and nothing's ever fixed um so it's sort of fairly crumbly and dark in my imagination as you you said Meg at 17 Martha has this experience of of something a little a little bomb exploding in her brain what did that mean for her in those first weeks and months what what did that look like in terms of the way she related with other people or or her day-to-day life well it the the way you know she talks about it being you know almost occurring in a day that she was well and then she wasn't um and after that time she sort of became I suppose you'd almost say a bit agoraphobic and she wouldn't come out of her room or even you know under her desk where she sort of felt like she was you know had been forced by some really black feeling and then from there she just sort of never I suppose gets well and even though as I said they you know they go to these doctors and they've um attempt to find this diagnosis it just sort of sits there as this recurring thing and because you know the episodes I guess is fairly discreet she it's easy to pin them to maybe one circumstantial cause and another but as she says instead of seeing them as beads on one long string um and so I guess that that puts her in a state of fairly arrested development that she at 17 everything that's meant to happen from there just doesn't happen and I think that's why we then meet this woman at 40 who's fairly unreconstructed and has behaved in certain ways that um, haven't felt like a choice and I suppose that's a question of it as well as where does the illness end and where does Martha begin Um, and readers definitely have different opinions on that. (laughs) And things get very dark I mean this is 
this is anxiety and then depression and real suicidal thinking that erupts for her at, at different stages, really from that age of 17 on. It's, it's, it's an incredibly debilitating experience for, for the character. Yes, I think it is, but I hope that it's really tricky because, I mean, it might be the product of my age, but I, I have a really complicated um, position on trigger warnings and content warnings in books because when you see them, it, you know, for on Instagram, for example, and I understand why they're there and, you know, obviously there's huge benefit to them, but at the same point, when you say it so blankly, you know, trigger warning, suicide, da, 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 it gives no sense of how it's handled. Mm -hmm. And I think, and again, I'm the author, not a reader, so I can't really have a fully objective opinion on it, but I, I hope it's handled in a way that makes it, um, not a light way because you can't handle things like that in a light way but almost a glancing way or it doesn't revel too much in the details like I wanted to be always really careful in portraying those scenes where Martha is at her lowest to make them as plain and as small as I possibly could if that makes sense mm. in terms of not painting these huge landscapes of suffering and you know endless um I guess, misery, but just a tiny moment where she can sort of capture one thing about what that might feel. And then as you put the picture together, that sort of gives an overall sense. I, I think that's what I intended to do. I hope it's worked because, you know, I don't want it to, to be this incredibly heavy, really troubling read because mm. I have such a, you know, with books like A Little Life, I really found that I just couldn't do it because, you know, for all its literary brilliantness, it was just too heavy for mm. me. And I, I definitely didn't want to kind of create something of that nature. Well, it, it's, I think those sort of novels can be unrelenting in the bleakness of, of a character's life. But one of the things that's really enlivening for Martha is that she has people who love her. She has really great people who love her, her sister Ingrid and also Patrick. Tell me more about him. How does he enter Martha's life? So this was the, their relationship is the one thing that I sort of had going into the novel because the whole mental illness strand came in later on its own without sort of invitation, oddly. But what I had with the two of them is this um, sense that they met as, as teenagers. Um, Martha has, you know, for her chaotic family, her aunt and uncle's family is extremely well-to-do, sort of Belgravia, um, you know, old money and they have a Christmas every year really formal Christmas that Martha's family goes to every year and one year Patrick turns up with one of the um, cousins as a sort of boarding school stray so because he's 14 and Martha's 17 at the time of course he's completely invisible to her but he becomes you know he comes back back every year and becomes that sort of piece of the furniture in that family friend sort of way um, and then over time she realizes you know she has a starter marriage to some you know absolutely awful man called Jonathan which is you know cursed from the beginning um and then one day sort of realizes that this friendship has developed and that they're now in love and I think to me because I'd set out to write a love story ironically considering what we've just discussed <laughs> is that that was I just found that hugely romantic you know the idea that you could fall in some in love with someone who was right there the entire time and has been sort of almost the most constant presence along with Ingrid in her entire life. Did you fall a little in love with Patrick as you were writing that character? I think I was already in love with him from the outset. And in my mind, you know, I have never, this is fresh content, this is a fresh revelation <laughs> for our listeners, is that what he, who he's based on, which I, is, I was watching, as you can probably also guess, because it's actually mentioned in the text, I was heavily into the Great British Bake Off at the time. And there was a character called Tamar, who, who was a, an aesthetist and a very able maker of cakes and hilarious and good looking. And he's, Patrick's just completely him. I saw him and I'm like, I, apart from having this immense crush on him myself, I just, he just seemed like absolutely Patrick to me. So in my mind's eye, I still see him as this character from, or this real person from season five of Bake Off. I could, I didn't know that, I didn't know the source, but I could feel that passion underneath the writing <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. She and Martha is is so painfully aware that she's often awful to this gorgeous, lovely, kind doctor. You know, sometimes she's funny awful and sometimes she's just cruel awful. And mm -hmm. it, it's kind of quite similar to the way her mother behaved with her father. There seems to be a bit of, there's kind of a parallel happening in the way mm -hmm. that Martha's marriage yeah. is working out to what she witnessed with her, her own mum and dad. 
which is ironic, isn't it? Because I think that's a common thing, even though we set out to do the exact opposite a lot of the time of what we witnessed. And then there's some sort of universal law that means we just end up replicating it completely. But I think that's whether I suppose it really depends, I think, when, when looking at her cruelty and the way she acts around him, I suppose the reader needs to make a decision or will make a decision as to whether that's really her or whether that is informed by her illness and by the, all the patterns that that establishes and all the dysfunction that gets sewn into every relationship from the very beginning. And, you know, they're no different in that way. And I have such sympathy for her that I I sort of am always on her side with with tending to, you know, to believing it's the illness, because even though I haven't suffered the way she has, I, you know, personally, I sort of look at it and think who would behave like that if they had a choice, though, you know, she is in love with this man and who on earth would choose to be that way if they could have any other choice at all, because, you know, she she knows. And, and I think the other reason I have sympathy for her is because she is full of shame like this entire book is is an apology and she never will report on something that she does or says or a way she acts with any kind of pride or even with objectivity you know she is always doing it within the context of of apologizing or saying how awful it was and so I sort of see that quite clearly but I think that you know you can miss it almost because she is um I guess tricky in the way she narrates so that she isn't giving you the full picture all of the time on one hand, Patrick is the more obviously sympathetic character, but something that Martha gets really frustrated with him about, and I think that as a reader you start to share, is his silence, that he's, he's got this kind of reluctance or this inability to talk directly with Martha about the anguish that she's going through and the real impact that that's having on their relationship. And they get in such a gridlock about it. And the way he soldiers on sort of, there's kind of a a damaging aspect to his stoicism, isn't there? It's it's not just that the the good man who is kind of quiet and well-meaning and soldiering on, there there can be a real frustration for the person on the other side of that steady, silent, patient person. Exactly. And I think it's one of those things, isn't it, that often there's a behaviour that starts out as helpful and well-intentioned and then as the relationship goes on, it actually stops being that and becomes something quite else. And I think it begins because all, you know, he's been in love with her since day one, since the first time he sort of set eyes on her. And so all he's ever wanted is, is to be with her. And he he's seen her, you know, in all her different, I guess, moods and temperaments and but he just he will do anything to keep her and so part of that is to always clean up you know the the physical and metaphysical messes that she makes and to just put up with it and to move forward and all of those sorts of things but also you know as a product of boarding school Martha decides at some point that he's actually you know got this newly diagnosed condition himself of boarding school syndrome which entails you know a lot of of sort of you know silent suffering and self-sufficiency and all of those sorts of things so I think he if he's not if he's not at least part of the problem, well, I mean, he is part of the problem is what I'm trying to say, because no one can wreck a marriage on their own. And I think that he's culpable, but just in a way that makes him look much better. But I think, you know, much a much better person than her. But I think that was another point that I can see I was trying to make, you know, after the fact is that when you lack a diagnosis, and you know, for all the talk about labels and is it helpful to have a label and, you know, to label other people, if you don't have a diagnosis in mental illness, you're very inclined to get a moral diagnosis to fill in that gap because what it can do, and I don't by any stretch mean this is what it always does, but it can when it's not understood well by the people around someone who's suffering, it can look like they're a bad person. You know, they are the one who wrecks Christmas and they are the one that, you know, always has a meltdown on holiday or they're the one who's kind of a drag because, you you know, you have to just endlessly be at home or whatever it is. Um, and that's not who she is, but it's how she's forced to behave. And I think that's what really, that's sort of where my heart slightly breaks for her because people are more inclined to think Patrick's brilliant and Martha's sort of cruel, but it's not necessarily a level playing field. So she does get this diagnosis. She finally comes across this lovely psychiatrist. I mean, you know, again, <laughs> the reader's heart leaps with joy that she's encountered someone in the in the medical profession who actually seems compassionate and wise and, and insightful. Yeah. And she gets, she gets a diagnosis. Tell me about what, first of all, what that means for her to have that encounter 
with a psychiatrist? Well, it, he is sort of, you know, a, one of the countless doctors that she's seen by this point, you know, which is sort of when she's 39. And although I never set out to write an issue-based sort of book or, you know, create something that would advance any kind of conversation or, you know, become part of the, the dialogue, what I have... I can see that it ties into is this growing conversation around medical misogyny, which is the way that women can get treated in the medical system, sort of be written off fairly quickly as hysterical or difficult or, you know, um, and to not be taken seriously in their pain, either physical or um, mental. And, you know, the very first doctor that she ever meets, which is when she's 17, sort of says, oh, it's so obviously glandular fever, there's nothing we can do about it. But girls like to sometimes feel special by taking a pill so she can have an iron tablet. And that sort of sets the tone for everything that she contends with through that period. And she sees, you know, different therapists and whatnot. But I think when she finally meets this psychiatrist, who's the only one who's ever named, and his name is Robert, the first interaction they have is that she shakes her, he shakes her hand and his handshake is quite firm and she says as though he wasn't expecting mine to be limp mm. because there's always that imbalance of you know the sort of I doctor and the hysterical woman and so then he takes her really seriously and he takes notes on her story and finally gives her this diagnosis and she she sort of it's obviously the turning point in her sort of life but then she's got to work out now what to do with this information. And in terms of the diagnosis that he gives Martha, tell me about how you wrote that in Sorrow and Bliss. Well, it's not named, which is tricky. It's it's sort of redacted is how I describe it, which is to be shown with two dashes instead of me ever actually revealing what this condition is. So she finds it out, but we don't. And the reason that I did that... Yes, so um, this reader wanting to shake you occasionally, <laughs> maybe shake the Exactly. Book. No, that's fine. <laughs> Tell that me why. Fine. I completely understand. It's because, as I sort of alluded to earlier, I didn't set out to write a book about mental illness and I didn't even set out to write a book. And once I realised I had done both of those things and it was going to be published, I had genuine, quite serious panic about the fact that I was putting this book out into the world that was about mental health and it's not entirely serious, or at least it's, you know, it's got these jokes in it and it's got, you know, it's told in that slightly different way. And I I was so concerned then that um, I would essentially really in plainness of that I would hurt people because I'm talking about something that is real and it's people's real life and their real daily struggle and I'm here sort of playing it for laughs you know in awful terms and that wasn't what I meant to do but I also had by that time I you know I began writing with sort of maybe one specific condition in mind but by the time it was all said and done and I realized it was being published I bent it and changed it so much that it wasn't any one thing anymore and so it felt completely wrong and irresponsible to to hang on to whatever it began as and say oh this is what this is like mm. you know and it, because it wasn't like that anymore and I would be willfully misrepresenting a real condition and so you know those things were sort of problems I was contending with on one side and then the other side from a sort of authorly perspective I'm already telling you a love story where you know from the blurb that they're separated by the time you get to the end so there's not you know it's difficult to build suspense and anticipation around that when the answer is you know when the ending is already told and then I'm sort of trying to tell you the story of one woman struggling with a mystery at the very centre of her existence. You know, that's the whole point of the story. And if that was also in the first line of the blurb, then we know something that she doesn't. And so we're in control of the narrative and she isn't. And that just sort of makes no sense. And then I think to extend that out as well, once it was, you know, if I put a condition in there, it is a book about that condition. Mm -hmm. And Martha is that condition. And because of the way these things work, she would not get to be anything else. And I wanted to show her as so much, you know, as a sufferer of this thing, but also the all of these other things. Um, and she would only get to be that one. And so I think that that was sort of, that seemed like a solution to all of those problems, which I say fully cognizant of the fact that it would be really, really frustrating <laughs> to strike on it. But it was pretty frustrating for Martha to not know it herself for 20 years. So I suppose we can kind of have sympathy for her, at least on that basis. 
Can you read a section from Sorrow and Bliss Meg where Martha talks to her father about receiving this diagnosis, this lovely sort of slightly hapless but very endearing and and kind of adoring father that Martha has? Yeah, so this is about a week after she's, you know, she's been to London to see Robert, the psychiatrist, and she has sort of been not completely, you know, she hasn't told Patrick at this point. And um, so, but she's told her mother um, after a fashion. So he has called her and invited her down for lunch. Um, My father was in the kitchen buttering sandwiches when I arrived. We took them up to his study and sat on the sofa under the window with our plates on our laps. He asked me what I'd been reading. I'd been reading nothing and said Jane Eyre. He told me he ought to pick it up as well. Then again, after a brief hesitation, do you know your mother hasn't had anything to drink this week? Nearly six days. Tense thing, I said, really? Well, do you know my mother has? And then I stopped. His face was so open. He looked so certain that I'd be gladdened by the fact that he even thought it was worth reporting. Did you know she... He waited, and in another moment, my reply still half said, he picked up a sandwich, a little piece of cucumber slid out. He said, whoops, it was unbearable. I did not want to hurt him. I wanted to hurt her in some direct way, not through him. I just said, well, six days isn't even her personal best. My father peeled back a corner of bread and put the cucumber back in. I suppose not, no. Do you want to talk about the X, though? The X is how we decided to handle it in the audiobook, I should say, because obviously that was quite challenging to know how to represent dashes in in spoken language so anyway yes it's x um do you want to talk about the x though the what my diagnosis the new doctor my father apologized he said he was drawing a bit of a blank my mother hadn't told him i assumed for a second in deference to my text but then of course not i felt so tired my father said you'll have to give me a bit of a clue i began to tell him what robert had said and the interest on my father's face became concern and then total grief as i kept going he said goodness goodness me over and over i could tell he wanted to believe me when i said as some sort of conclusion that it's good if it means i'm not insane He said, yes, okay, I can see that. And supposedly it does favor the brilliant. In fact, he put his plate aside and stood up going over to his computer, which was enormous and old, purchased with the money from Jonathan's engagement ring. Let's have a look. He poked at the keyboard with his index finger saying slowly out loud, famous people with X. He pressed one more key and looked up at the screen, squinting at the slideshow he was being offered. I watched him try with some effort to guide the mouse towards its target, and I felt happy, unaccountably, except that I was with him in this room where we had spent so much time and I, where I had always felt all right if it was just us. He clicked and said, look, here we go, right off the bat, reading out the name of the famous artist who appeared first. I looked at his black and white photograph and said it was a curious choice, the artist sitting on the edge of his bed holding a rifle. Didn't he shoot himself in the head? My father seized the mouse. Another dead artist appeared, then a dead composer and two dead writers as he kept clicking faster and faster in search of a better example. A dead politician and a dead television presenter. I watched, aware that I should have been upset by this online roster of suicides, but I wasn't. For everything it had done to me, I had outrun it. More brilliant people, famous and unknown, had not been able to, although they would have done so much to save themselves, and I had done so little. I did not deserve to be alive instead of them. They had suffered and lost. I had been told by Robert that I'd managed very well. I should not have been so lucky. After a series of dead actors, my father glanced over his shoulder and in a desperate voice said, who's that? He's a comedian who used to be addicted to painkillers, but he's still alive, so that's good. Yes, my father smiled feebly before turning back to the screen, skipping past a picture of a pop star he didn't recognise either, in despair until finally he dropped back in his chair. He pronounced the name of an American poet who was dead but of natural causes. Exhausted but gratified, he said, well, I did not know that. I laughed and said, amazing. It is amazing. My daughter and the architect of postmodernism. I asked him if he thought we should go and make coffee and he leapt out of his chair and went ahead of me to the kitchen. (laughs) Meg Mason reading from her her latest novel, Sorrow and Bliss. Meg, you've you've spoken a little bit about how readers respond to to Martha and where that line between illness and just kind of being awful is. What about from you as, as her creator? Like what does it mean for you as a writer to have this element of a diagnosable psychological condition in your character? I mean, does it give you a different kind of freedom for her to act in ways that seem... I don't know, irrational or, or counterproductive or, or where's her agency? You know, how did you figure it in 
to your creation of her, this fact there is this X, call it what we will or describe it as we will? Yeah, I well, do you know, it's funny because I always focus so much on the readers who don't like her and think she's really unsympathetic, but there's as many who find her sort of as charming and, um, you know, interesting as I do, I think. But the way that she came about in the, well, actually, the way that her relationship with Ingrid came about, and Ingrid is, is the character that tends to be, I suppose, spoken about in the warmest tones. Everyone seems to really like her and they think she's brilliant and it's kind of the relationship between them that she likes the best and somehow she is a bit of a foil to Martha. This is Martha's but sister, the thing, her slightly younger exactly, sister. Yeah. Exactly. And, but the thing is, when I began writing the book, because it was going to be Martha's telling of her story... Ingrid was going to be almost the compare and contrast character of, of, you know, they're so close and they're so close in age and in every other way. But Ingrid, because she didn't, you know, no bomb went off in her brain at 17, got everything that Martha didn't get because she would say of her illness. So Ingrid has children and a marriage and a house and, a, you know, a career. And, and Martha sort of finds herself without all of those things. But in my original sort of conceit we were then going to find out that you know Ingrid didn't even exist that she was just Martha telling this genuine compare and contrast so I think that um I suppose I was always holding her up against what she might have been like if this hadn't have happened and I think that's what Martha is trying to do as well like to reflect on these situations and and once she has the diagnosis and she is then properly treated and suddenly for the first time at 40 she feels like she has agency and she feels like she can decide how she's going to react to situations instead of you know in her words waking up in the middle of already reacting and she sort of writes this email you know that she never sends to Robert but to say you know I didn't know that this was what it felt like and I didn't know that this is what being an adult meant and she could always sort of see I suppose people around her choosing their words wisely or or you know sort of withholding what they might react and she could never do that you know she would find herself throwing a vase across the room and sort of all of those things so it's suddenly this this experience that she has of feeling found you know also she's suddenly been able to step into her adult self but I think then you know she's vindicated in a way because once she's instantly able to stop doing that and I you know again I'm not sort of an expert in any way on mental illness and its treatment so I can't say that this is exactly how it would play out but you know for the purposes of fiction um she's then you know vindicated in her belief that it was never her and that every time you know I think she says that she sort of observed herself from outside and saw a stranger you know she was right that wasn't that wasn't really her and it wasn't who she was meant to be. Mm. So she is this the psychiatrist who diagnoses Martha does prescribe a medication which does have an incredibly positive effect on Martha and allows her as you say to react with a kind of self-awareness it doesn't make her a saint like she's still got these very established patterns of how she deals particularly with with Patrick and with her sister Mm. but but it does give her a different kind of agency or or allows her to at least see what's happening even if she still is is a bit trapped in doing it this sister Ingrid that you you mentioned and it's so fascinating to think at first she was just an imaginary character because their relationship feels so real in in the book Martha and and Ingrid but Ingrid has kids she actually just seems to keep getting pregnant almost every time that that Martha talks to her she's <laughs> announcing I'm pregnant again I've just done another pregnancy test and and that is some one of those tensions or contrasts between them which so many women of that age of your your late 20s 30s it really is a real current between sisters and and between friends and the question do you want kids or why haven't you got kids how what have you observed in your own worlds Meg around that I mean you had your children fairly young but for other women friends or, or families they've got older and and it's not happening or they've decided not to have it happen how, how have you seen that play out that kind of longing or that the social expectation of that longing yeah it's so funny because it's probably one of the areas I mean apart from the fact that I don't have a sister so there's an immense amount of wish fulfillment I think in their relationship <laughs> oh that explains me. why it's such a happy relationship I see I see <laughs> two sisters exactly. I see the difference <laughs> Exactly. So it's all the good bits and none of the bad bits that I haven't experienced. But definitely, I mean, part of that is to explore, you know, and and I do have a sibling. So I kind of have seen, I think this happens to every sibling relationship that no matter how close you are and allied in childhood, as adulthood sort of comes on and you make different life decisions, you are taken off in different directions. And the challenge in staying close is to keep finding that middle ground. And I can imagine amongst sisters, it's even harder when 
it's around children and you know even having them or not having them having them at different times and yours are teenagers and there's a babies and where do you even just in actual functional terms keep finding time for each other so that's something that they're contending with but I think you know I sort of had the opposite as it were problem in the sense that I had my first daughter at 25 and the experience that's in common that I guess I put in the text even the actual you know it's the opposite in one way is that people are stunningly free to pronounce opinions on your decisions around parenthood so as in when you're 25 people are really generous with their belief that you've done it wrong and that you've had them too early and that you've stopped your career and you know I think that's so stunning now looking back you know from the, the my age of 43 and thinking I'm sure that I wouldn't tell a 25 year old to her face as often as I was told you know or asked was it an accident or you know all of that sort of thing which is so um amazing to me now and really tragic in a way because I absorbed it as absolute truth because I didn't really know any better and it took me years to start thinking well actually is that true um and of course it wasn't but I I had my narrative so shaped by that and I think that that must be something you know if I imagine it out as best I can that women who decide not to have children or women who are trying to have children and you know are told well you need to do this and you need to do that and you know you need to hurry up and all of whatever it is it's just amazing that that's you know a point of conversation outside you know ourselves and our relationships but it was so interesting because Anne Patchett actually has a book coming out in November of essays and there's a brilliant one about um you know what she's experienced around that because she knew from the get-go that she didn't want children but you still have to go through the three decades or whatever of being asked why and would she change her mind and all that sort of thing and she sort of came to the conclusion that it's actually almost a conversation that people just use like small talk you know they just ask you because they can ask you and you're at a party and you don't have children so let's talk about why not um but it's it's strangely inappropriate do you know mm -hmm. what I mean and yet it's, it's just something that we all feel entitled to comment on so it's really really strange that that's you know, it's such a private thing and yet you can have it it's brought the, up over canopies. Exactly, which is something that Martha and Patrick are often experiencing. It's when they're at parties with people they don't well, where they don't know well, where they've got to be ready for how they're going to answer this question mm. and, and knowing that it's likely to be an emotional one for them and, and a reactive one. I mean, I can't, you know, it's it's... It's a novel. It's fiction. You keep pointing out the many ways that it's different from Meg Mason's own life. But <laughs> I, I can only imagine that readers have felt so affected by the visceral way you describe, particularly Martha's anguish and the darkness and, and must see that that you have some experience of that or want to talk about their own experience of something like that with you? Are you constantly in discussion with, with readers around how do you know this about mental illness, Meg, if you've not been in this on this path as well? Yeah, I mean, that's to say I haven't been on that exact path. And, you know, I don't think anybody could truthfully or, you know, rightly think that they haven't, you know, if you really sit down and think about it, I think all of us can think of, some way that we've been affected by mental illness whether personally or in a family or you know I just don't think it spares anybody and it definitely hasn't spared me um but I am also not you know a, a chronic sufferer of whatever Martha's condition is so I think it's it's this funny experience because I was really braced for the question of is it autobiographical when it when it was about to come out because obviously you get asked that even if a woman sets a book in the moon you'll be asked if it's autobiographical because you must be an astronaut if you know so much about space and you know it, it so I was sort of braced for it and I was feeling almost bitter in advance about how often <laughs> I was going to be asked it which is really ridiculous because you're so lucky if anyone asks you any questions at all you know what I mean it's like oh people are so interested in my work what a nightmare um but I, I think, I mean, the amazing thing actually, and, you know, why I'm sort of completely humbled now and would never take that position is how generous people have been in sort of sharing their stories or saying to me that it has made them feel like something that they've experienced that possibly couldn't put words around or language around. It's contained something of that experience for them. And even if, you know, if they're the sort of Martha in their family, as it were, they're able to almost say, this is what I'm talking about. You know, page 23 is what I'm talking about. Um, and so that feels like an immense 
compliments not the right word but I mean if that's something that they feel I've done then you know that's just incredibly um you know validating or something or what an honor really to be to be told that that's true um so yeah when Martha's living back at her parents place and kind of lost in the direct aftermath of her breakup with Patrick she starts working her way through all of Virginia Woolf's books did (laughs) Woolf's writing help give you a window in what it could be like to struggle the way Martha does yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's an entire canon, isn't there, that I was, you know, I sort of, as soon as I did actually clock on to the pleasure of reading when I was about 19, I very quickly sort of went down that track of, you know, um, women writers of that ilk from, you know, her to Plath to Janet Frame. And so I didn't do any research per se for the book because, again, I didn't know I was doing it. But that was all there, I think, you know, that had all been absorbed and, you know, to, to look at some of those things and then you just bring in and gather in any other scenes or things you've heard or stories from friends or you know whatever it might be to kind of put that whole picture together so definitely but do you know the best thing is because there's a couple I think there's one proper quote by Virginia Woolf and I've learned that if you do that people quote you quoting Virginia Woolf but don't <laughs> attribute it to her so you get the praise for Wolfian she's, language she's so, so that's perceptive Meg Mason she's astonishing <laughs> she amazing she do that that's so funny oh as well it's one was... of the greats <laughs> <laughs> Some reviews have referred to Sorrow and Bliss as an adult coming of age novel and I find that really interesting that the way, uh, whether it's a generational thing, that, that our, our 20s and our 30s are really seen as this stage for formative drama rather than childhood and teenage years, which was the case in coming of age novels of, of years gone, gone by. It seems there is a lot of growing up still to be done even as we hit 40, Meg. Exactly. And I think that's that I completely believe that. And I think I might have actually tried to frame it myself or or did see it myself as a coming of age when I was doing it, because, you know, that whole idea of arrested development at 17 and then suddenly at 40, she's, you know, she's, as we were saying, given her agency, then she can finally grow up. But she's also got to decide now if she will and how and how to begin again and how to take responsibility for the parts of this that actually are her fault you know that where she could have possibly made different decisions and I think you know the the place where the book has the most overlap with my own life is that I was 40 when I started writing it and she was you know 40 at the start of the book and I think you do get suddenly to 40 and it's quite shocking in the way that you you really become suddenly aware of the fact that there isn't as much time as there was to kind of undo decisions that you made or you know things that you might have done in your 20s that you thought oh well I can just turn that around and you know that's fine I can make up for it at 40 things are getting fairly set and I think that that can bring on a real sense of almost panic if if it hasn't set the way you wanted it to or you know you're sort of looking at what you thought you'd have compared to what you've actually got and that's quite that's quite shocking but I think the big learning point for me at 40 because you know my career was in a really tricky spot at that time and you know I, I thought I'd be different things and was the sudden realization that no one is coming to save me I am not getting any help from anyone outside of myself essentially you know so for the next whatever I want the next bit of my life to be it will be a decision of my own and work of my own that will kind of get me there and so I think I suddenly felt as soon as I realized that it felt like a real growing up because I think deep down through my 20s and 30s I thought well it's all right because someone's going to do this or someone will sort this out for me and and I think that's where I was like oh my goodness they're actually not going to there's no cavalry there's just me. One character in the book who's a very different model of adulthood than Martha is her aunt Winsome and that's someone that the reader comes to see really differently as the novel progresses. Tell me a, a bit about about Winsome. Yes, so Winsome is absolutely dear to me. I just, I just, anyone who tells me they adore Winsome, I adore that person because I think she's sort of the quiet, slightly unsung hero of it in the sense that she is seven years older than Celia, Martha's mother. And when those two were growing up in, you know, fairly... Um, ordinary circumstances their mother died and so Winsome who was seven years older ended up sort of parenting Celia as it were giving up her budding you know career as a pianist to come back and look after her and raise her so consequently their relationship is really difficult because it has this strange power balance and then you know Winsome marries money Celia doesn't and we sort of you know find out that Celia's life's being fairly well funded by Winsome the entire time which is complicated because you know money and siblings Um, but I think what what we see and what 
Martha herself comes to realise is that Winsome is an adult and has always been an adult and behaves like an adult and does things the way, you know, as adults do, which is for other people. And so even though Celia sort of, you know, requires her daughters to resent, you know, their aunt as much as she does, um, what you actually realise is that all the ways that, you know, Celia would say she's been controlling, she's actually, you know, trying to create stability and, you know, to kind of contain this chaos of the family. So I think, and I sort of feel like there's a winsome in every family, do, do you know, if someone in your family is demanding that the platters go leftward around the table, then that's probably winsome <laughs> and she's probably doing it for your benefit. Was that your Aunt Jenny, Meg? No, well, no, <laughs> no, no, she's, my aunt wasn't at all like that, but yeah, I mentioned her in the acknowledgements, but it was someone, do you know, someone was asking me actually how you come up with a, a character and I, I don't think you imagine out their whole being, but somebody did tell me once that they had an aunt or a mother-in-law, somebody who who insisted on the platters at Christmas going in one direction and one direction only. And it's sort of those things that I think maybe constitutionally as a novelist, you just collect them. And within those things, instead of ascribing that characteristic to a person, that is where you get the whole character from. And, you know, now that I know about the platters, I can see her house and what she's wearing and, you know, how her hair is cut and all of those sorts of things. So it's kind of in reverse, I think. Mm. Um, I've I've heard writers say that each book they write teaches them something for the next one. What do you want to take from Sorrow and Bliss, if that's if that's true for you, if you learn from each book that you write? Oh, it's such an apposite question because I've been sitting here with the next one all day today, just <laughs> feeling like I wonder what other jobs there are. Um, but I think that to me, um, Sorrow and Bliss was the easiest and most joyful writing experience of my life, oddly, um, but only because I put in a year of fairly hardcore artistic suffering ahead of it. Um, but I think what I learned is I know I'll never have another experience like Sorrow and Bliss, but there needs to be, to a degree, um, the same sense of desperation almost to tell the story. So unless I feel in some way really desperate to, to do this and to let these characters speak and to give them a life, um, you know, and to, to exist, then I shouldn't, I shouldn't be doing it. Because I think it can be really hard to know if you're almost onto something and you know, I think we all, you know, whether it's our first novel or our 10th, you sort of can get to a point of questioning, well, maybe this is just boring and maybe it's dumb and why do, you know, why would anyone care? But if I care, then I can sort of make readers care. If I don't care, then we're all in trouble. Um, so I think that's what I sort of want to keep checking back on um, and to make sure that I'm sort of writing with that some sense of that, definitely. Well, Meg, this reader cared so much. I loved it. And it's been really <laughs> delightful to speak with you about Sorrow and Bliss as well. Thanks so much for speaking to oh, me. Oh, thank you. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. That was Meg Mason, author of Sorrow and Bliss. And I'm Sarah Konoski from Conversations on ABC Radio and Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the RISE Fund an Australian government initiative, and the New South Wales government through Create New South Wales. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. 